Hi, this is John Freeman, the editor of Granton Magazine. I'd like to welcome you to our latest edition of the podcast. This is a series of 20 podcasts we're doing with our Best of Young British Novelists 4, and I'm very happy to be joined here in the glamorous Granta basement with Kamala Shamsi, who is one of our 20 best British writers under 40. She's kicking off the issue with a story called Vipers, which is part of her new novel. Uh, she is the author of five novels, including Cartography, Broken Verses, and Burnt Shadows, which was an orange finalist, as well as uh, one work of nonfiction called Offense. Um, Kamala, welcome to our basement. Thank you very much. It's very basementy. Yes, um, I'm afraid that we are going to upgrade our studios in the next Best of British issue. Um, I, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about um, the larger novel from which this this piece comes, and if if these characters that we meet in the story uh, follow us through the whole novel. Um, the novel has two primary storylines. One is a British woman who is an archaeologist who then gets drafted into work for military intelligence um, during the First World War, which is what happened with a lot of the archaeologists. And the second, which is the extract you have, is a young Indian man of Bataan who's signed up with the British Indian Army and has gone to fight in the Western Front. Um, and it is, it's about their two lives colliding mm. in Peshawar um, in 1915 and then again in 1930. This reminds me, uh, a larger theme that I've noticed in your work is that um, there's often twinned storylines uh, and twinned characters, um, often to do with love and often to do with the, the way that uh, love is both broken by and made necessi- necessary by war. Um, are, are you saying anything about these two forces of human life, that love and love and war are both... Uh, you know, forces that we can't control but we wish to or are, is this just something that you keep coming back to without really no- noticing it? Well this one actually um, doesn't have love in, it in that way I mean it's not love with the two characters but even as I'm saying that I realize that there are there are all kinds of ways within the novel that there is love and, and war um, gets in the way um, I'm interested as as novelists are in the individual, but I'm also interested in the much larger picture and the the interaction of those two things. What do the big forces um, of history, of politics, um, what role they play in in the individual's life? And so, to me, love is you know at the micro level, and then war is at the macro level. And and when the two collide, something interesting and dramatic very often happens. Um, but I also think what happens is is in times of war, people get reduced to their nation or their tribe in a way that makes this whole idea of love where it's just you and me and, you know, the, you know your skin, my skin, um, a complicated matter because you're in a larger community which is responding now to the person you love in a very different way. And what are you going to do against that? You went to university in the, in the U.S. You went to Hamilton College. Um, I presume you probably were writing then, and, and your first novel, uh, City by the Sea, is it In the City by the Sea? In the City, in by, the the city. by the Sea, um, takes place in Pakistan uh, and is a sort of coming-of-age story, a love story to some small degree. Um, and I wondered if while you were writing that, you were in grad school in the U.S. at Massachusetts, if you came to a point where you had to decide whether to import uh, the, the social and historical and political context of the country that you're from into your current life, 
was which was partly being lived in the U.S. Did you did you ever come to a point where you thought, you know what, I could just turn my back on this and write whatever I wanted, or did you feel compelled by this past and and context? no, there, there are two parts. But one is I was I was studying in America, but my life, you know, lived life was in Pakistan, and in a way that I didn't think I'm going to be in America forever. Um, you know, I'm here. I'm being educated, it's having a fantastic time, but then I'm going back there. Um, so there was always that, that very strong sense, even while I was working on the first book. But but beyond that, I mean, the truth is that the history of Pakistan exerts a particular pull because it is so damaged and difficult. Um, and because there is this way of trying to make sense of it. And for me, the the best way I know of trying to interrogate an idea or look at a moment is to do it through fiction. Um, is to find an imaginative way into it, um, and and so that you know it became. I wasn't thinking about. This is going to sound silly. I wasn't thinking of anyone but myself. Um, this is what I'm interested in. If you're going to write a novel, the thing you're writing about is the thing you're going to be obsessed with for the next year or two years or three years. Um, so it better be the thing you're obsessed with. Mm. Your mother's a, an anthologist and a writer. You have an aunt who is a poet or a writer. You, you have other writers in your family. To what role did these um, influences uh, either not make you a writer but make it seem possible that you could be a writer? And, and, and in what way growing up? So when I was growing up in Pakistan, the idea of being a writer writing novels in the English language was you know, a slightly ludicrous one in as much as at that point in the 80s, there was only one writer, Babsi Sitwa, who was being published abroad. And, and you know, people used to talk about it as if, well, that's the one. You know, No one's going to be interested um, in anyone else. And, and it wasn't a particularly creative environment. It was, you know, um, the 80s in Pakistan were creative if you were an Urdu language writer. There was a lot going on there. But the English language writing scene was quite desolate. Um, but because I had this other life, this home life, where people were writing, where people were talking about books... Um, that was actually the really important thing. You know, my mother um, had Granta arriving at, at our doorstep, you know, once a month um, through the 80s. It would, and some months it wouldn't arrive because the post from England to Pakistan was notoriously difficult. But having someone in that family who was really interested in contemporary, primarily British fiction. Um, so when I was 14 or 15, gave me um, Salman Rushdie and gave me Kasia Ishiguru. Also gave me Peter Carey, gave me... Anita Desai, um, these writers who, at a time when the bookshops were very badly stocked, uh, there wasn't the internet. Um, so it wasn't so much the fact of my mother being a writer, it was my mother being someone passionately engaged with contemporary fiction mm. allowed me to also be the same. I wondered if you could talk to me about any influences in the, in the City by the Sea. As I was rereading it, I, what it struck me that was so exceptional about it is the the way... It uses a young adult point of view, it's our teenage point of view, to um, embody the way that living in a state which doesn't tell you everything, um, it, uh, in, not infantilizes you, but it keeps you in a state of constant adolescence in a way, um, was very sophisticated. And it reminded me to some small degree of Things Fall Apart um, and, and a few other books. And I wondered if you had models for that novel when you were working on it, or if you were really just sort of tacking in the dark on your own? 
Um, well, obviously, I'd read things fall apart. I'm sure I'd read a lot of other novels with you. I mean, of course, you know, Midnight's Children, you know, he starts off very young, you know, I and mean, even though it's the older narrator, but a lot of it is the young Salim Sinai, and that was that was very significant. But the truth is also this, that when I started writing when I was 21, um, I didn't know, you know, childhood had formed the bulk of my life. Um, so it sort of made sense to me to go back to childhood. But really, that book started because I was um, writing a, a letter to a friend of mine. These were pre just pre email days um and i was talking about the time when i'd be when i was six or seven and went to visit an uncle of mine who was a political prisoner under house arrest um who lived in the north of pakistan and in the letter i wrote the line um despite the fear and insecurity that must have pervaded my uncle's house that winter what i remember most clearly is the smell of pine cones and then i wrote dot 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 that sounds the beginning of something doesn't it so that's really how that started do you write autobiographically? I mean, I, I thought about this when I was reading Salt and Saffron and cartography. And, and Salt and Saffron, it's, a character goes back to Pakistan and then suddenly saturated with old family influences and the parochialisms that, that um, situate themselves there among a, a stratified society. And, and um, in cartography, a character moves to London and is, becomes obsessed with making maps of Karachi, which is a unmapped city. Mm-hmm. And I reading this and knowing you a tiny bit, I felt like it was like seeing a part of, of your life mythologized. And do you, do you, do you work that, that way? I think that's, that's a, a, the idea of a part of my life mythologized is a nicer way of, or a, I think a truer way of putting it than the idea of autobiographical writing. Because there's nothing that bores me more as a writer than the thought of basing characters on actual characters or basing plot on actual plot. You know, I love the imagination of it. But the the outlines of the world in the first four novels are all the outlines of the world I grew up in. Um, It's within a certain neighborhood of Karachi. Uh, These invented characters went to the same school I did. Mm -hmm. Uh, They live in the same sort of milieu um, as I did. And a lot of them are the same age as I was at the time I was writing them. Um, So for the first four, that was very much sort of going over you know, my own history um, or these moments in history that I had lived through um, or these social worlds that I had been a part of um, and and doing something fictionally with it. And then quite dramatically, that became absolutely the last thing I wanted to do. So Salt and... I mean, so um, Burnt Shadows and now the novel Untitled, which I'm just finishing, um, are now very separate from my experiences. Can you talk a bit about the Karachi Grammar School? Um, we've published another writer who went there, and I've met friends of yours who've gone there. Your sister taught there for a bit. And it sounds like a remarkable school, and I wonder if you, if, if it has had an outsized influence in, in your life as a as a, as a writer or, or thinker. Um, Any more than, I guess, typical. Like, I don't know that it has. <laughs> I mean, I think a, a lot of growing up and being a writer was about getting away from easy assumptions you have if you grew up in in a certain world where which is fairly homogenous as it, it it was i mean it was you know um i learned a lot and i read great stuff there um but i think it's useful to to go away for a while and then be able to to look back with a more critical lens on the assumptions you were living among the privilege you were living among without really knowing the way you were living among it but having said that you know it was my life from the age of 4 to 18 so that was childhood for me was in this was in this place. So it is significant, um, but I think moving away is also significant. It must also throw. You wrote a piece for us for the Pakistan issue, a memoir, uh, which was some degree based on that time, and then following some of the characters 
who wrote uh, the song Deal Deal Pakistan into their adult life and seeing through them how the country had changed and what the terms of cultural debate had become uh, in those intervening years. And obviously there were several other, you know, historical figures that were driving that force. But I, I, I guess what I, I'm curious about is, is it hard not to be overly nostalgic of that, that um, pre-Zeal Hawk time uh you know, when it was a it was a cosmopolitan place, and and all the forces you described in that essay were in, were in, in yeah, I think in it's action. it's very important to not be nostalgic about it. I mean, you know, so I was born in seventy three, Ziaulhaq came to power in seventy seven. So I, you know, anything I know about life beyond that is very much you, your parents' stories about the good old days, um, which I largely swallowed for a while. But you know, you look back and you realize that actually those good old days were were good for a certain group of people. Mm. Um, and yes, there were certain things about them that were much better. Um, there, w- there was, it was a safer, it was a safe country. You know, I know women friends of my mother who would travel around the country or through many parts of it um, without being worried about their security. That's, that is something to be deeply nostalgic about. Um, religion didn't have the extremist shading that it now has. That's something to be extremely nostalgic about. But there was always um, an undemocraticness. Um, there was a stratification of society, which is much less now. Um, democracy, as messy as it is, is only now for the first time um, beginning to be something that's actually, you know, not just a hiccup, but is, is something with legs. Um, so, so, yes, I think it's important to actually join the dots and say Ziaul Huck was not an aberration who turned a lot, turned up and was able to subvert what had been this rather jolly nation, um, that he was only able to do what he did because everything, all the seeds were already planted, mm. um, that it was already there, and that the people who weren't worried enough about it or who let it happen or who did it, um, thinking they could control the consequences, they have to be held accountable as well. Is this why you partly write about... Um I mean, in, in cartography, there's there's one character who, who leaves and goes to London, another one, his friend, stays. Mm. And I, you've gone back t- uh, to Pakistan for your whole life, and um, it, it must, to sometimes, when you're here in Britain, seem like an alternate life, even though you have friends and your family are there and you're in touch constantly, you read the newspapers and follow the mm. cricket. Do you have one of those Milan Kandera moments where you, you have a life that is y- you living in Pakistan and having never left mm-hmm. and do you, do you ever feel a sense of betrayal about having having taken what is obviously a good opportunity to get leave and, mm-hmm. and be able to come back I think one of the most fortunate things in my life is that you know guilt l- largely remains um, absent from it <laughs> no, but, but seriously no I don't feel a sense of betrayal um, because I think in some ways you know you, I made a choice um and I'm living with a choice. And, and to do this sort of, oh, I should have done... If I really felt I should have done differently, I would do differently. Um, so there's no sense of betrayal. And, and there's I think through the writing, there's a deep engagement. I think it's an interesting question how I would feel if my writing went away from there. I think actually that might be a more significant moment. And I don't know if that were to happen, how I would feel about it. The thought makes me slightly feel slightly odd, mm. even now sitting here. Um, rather than the moving there or moving away. When did um, you move to Britain? I mean, as well, you're really only six years ago. Um, so I've been, you know, I used to spend 
a bit of my year here um, from the time I left university, from the time the first book was published, which was 98. But Karachi was still the base. Karachi was still you know, the main home. Um, and so it was six years ago I came here. And, and that may be why I don't have that sense of, even though there are, in many ways, it's a very different life there and here, um, I don't have a sense of that being... You know, this real, I'm sitting here thinking what a weird place that is because that is the sediment. Pakistan is sort of the default for me. Um, so sometimes I feel how odd it is here. There was um, I was in Karachi in, in February and, and as I was leaving there were strikes and protest strikes at days because um, the Shias had been massacred and there were and I was entirely sympathetic to the protesters, but I wanted to get to the airport and the roads were closed. Um, and we ended up having to take a fairly, my father was driving, taking a fairly circuitous road and some really lovely man on a motorcycle led us through these, you know, pathways we would never have found to get there. And there was, you know, gunshots and all kinds of things going on. Um, and I arrived in, in London and I got into the Heathrow Express and, and onto Twitter to see. And all the, everyone I knew in England on Twitter was talking about an article Hillary Mantel had written about <laughs> Kate Middleton. You just think, what is this world? This is the main news story. Thing. I mean, I'm quite grateful that this is the main news story here rather than protesters and massacres. But, you know, this is what felt weird to me. In your in your books, especially Broken Verses and, and Burnt Shadows, you, uh, what's what I quite love about them is the way you see history traveling through the current of people's lives and their bodies um, as a you know, arc through time, and it, to some degree, those last two novels remind me a lot of Michael and Dachi's books, and the way they montage, um, you know, time and, and put together a, a life story. And you know, you live in a world where you're on Twitter, you're you, you comment for the Guardian quite a bit, you're on radio. Um, how do you uh, disengage from those things in order to to write the kind of deeper structure of of time and history being felt in in uh, in inter- intimate spaces, interior spaces? I think you have to go silent at a point. Um, and it is, it's, you know, it's, it is an effort of will um, increasingly because it's so easy to get distracted. And particularly at the early points of a novel where it's painful and you don't know what you're doing. Um, and it quite literally is go offline, say no to everything you're being asked to do, however tempting it is, make a rule for yourself, I'm saying no. Um, unless it's something that you absolutely can't not write about. So when Malala Yousafzai was shot by the Taliban, I was at a point in the novel where I was saying no to everything, but I thought, I just want to say something here. Mm. Um, I don't want to be silent in this moment. And of course, you know, you, you have to be aware of, or I have to be aware of what's happening on a daily basis in Pakistan and elsewhere around the world, because I'm in this world, in this present moment. Um, but you do have to go away and, and retreat for a while. Um, it becomes easy in the late stages of a book where you reach a point of obsession where, you know... So in the early stages of the book, I have to use um, a piece of software, Mac Freedom, which, <laughs> which you, know, you get a group of writers yeah. in a room. I think we should do this when you get the t- 20 you know, <laughs> writers together um, and see how many used Mac Freedom and where they got it from. You know, So I got from Nick Laird um, and he got from another writer and um, all this. Um, so in, in the early stages of writing a book, I have to use this piece of software to shut off my internet and make me impossible. It for, forces you to do it. It does. The only way to, to turn it back on or to disable it is by shutting down your computer and restarting it. Um, and by the late stage of a novel, you know, the internet can be on. I'm not going to go there. Um, you know, it's sort of, I'm now deep enough into this other place. But it takes a long time now 
because of all this other stuff to get into that that deeper sense. Do you um, do you have any equivocal feelings about being on on this list as uh, you're you're in the process of becoming a citizen? Mm-hmm. You've lived here for six years. We asked you to submit, mm-hmm. um, and yet you know obviously because of the history of Britain and in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia and and in South Asia and mm-hmm. Pakistan in particular, mm-hmm. it's not it's not a gentle history by any stretch and. This it's country not, and its yeah, empire was built yeah, by the labor yeah, of Pakistanis yeah. and Indians. Yeah, which is why, you know, I think it's sort of... Um, history is an evolving thing. So I think to have become a British citizen in 1948, when a country had just released itself from empire, would have been a terrible thing. Um, but it's a different moment now. It's a different country. Um, and certainly London is a different city. I was, you know, I, I woke up this morning and, and a friend of mine texted and said, you know, turn on Radio 4, and my my uncle, my mother's first cousin, was on, is um, a director called Varys Hussain, talking about being the person who directed the first episode of Doctor Who. Um, you know, and to me, this is what Britain is now, is that, they're, they're, and it's not easy, there's still a lot of problems, but um, I'm choosing to become a citizen of this country, um, and I'm choosing to live here. And I think what, if you make those choices, and I'm making those choices willingly, it's not that I'm doing it because I need to escape from the other place or because, you know, I'm married to someone who has to be here. It's I've chosen this place. Um, and I think once you've done that, it's just silly to be equivocal about that choice you've made. Um, you can be, equi- and you should be equivocal about any nation um, and its government and its history. Um, but if you live among it, you should also want to be within it um, and and seeing it, it shape and change around you. Mm. Um, and one of the things with, with the novel I'm writing about, because it's set during the age time of empire, um, is it does allow you to look back and see how awful that was. Um, and basically, at its centre, its morality was based on racism. The morality of empire was based on the idea of the civilising mission, which basically says we're superior to them, so we must go... Um, and of course, there are people here who still hold to that view, um, but it's a very different London now, certainly that I'm living in, um, and I quite like living here. 